0: I'm so happy to finally have you in the studio recording this podcast Would you please introduce yourself for our listeners
1: Thank you so much Dipsa I'm so happy that I got this opportunity to be here And um, hello and Johar everyone. Uh, I'm Archana Soring. I belong to Kharia tribe from Sundaga district of Odessa. I have been working with UN Secretary General as uh, his youth advisor on climate change. And I'm a former member of UN Secretary General's youth advisory group on climate change from 2020 to 2023. I have been a researcher. And working on rights of indigenous people, local communities, climate justice, and also in terms of rights of indigenous people. Well, when I have to introduce myself, there's this element of what I do and who I am. And that's why I uh, tend to have this reflection of, you know, who I am is something rooted with what I do. And um, there, I would like to formally introduce myself. Is like my name is Archana Soreng. Where the meaning of my surname Soreng means rock, and I'm here, very much rock and still to advocate for indigenous people and climate action.
0: What a beautiful introduction! There are so many feathers, and yet you choose that one beautiful beginning where you're explaining your surname. Wow, that is the start of our conversation. Uh, Let us talk about a journey, the journey that you've had
1: from the forests of Odessa to the cities of the world. Uh, Journey is an intergenerational concept. Um, It starts off from my grandparents to my father and mother, parents and to myself. Um, I come from a very small village from Sundar district, which is Palipos, which is my ancestral home of my father. This brings me down that today if I am here doing the work I am doing is because of my grandparents and because of my parents. My grandfather has been a strong pioneer of community-led forest protection practices. He was of the staunch believer that if you don't have a sustainable relationship with nature and land and forest, you cannot have a sustainable life. And brought into my father, who have been um, an advocate uh, for land rights and forest rights, along with my parents. When I was growing up, when I was in class ten, after my you know schooling, my both of my parents, given the situation and the circumstances we are coming from, it's like if you really want to contribute back to the community, you have to enter into policy making, and that particular sentence. That particular advice has changed my life completely. And that is what has guided me to who I am. Because that is what makes me realize that today, if I'm working in the climate action or climate justice space, has to do a lot more with our worldview, uh, our way of living. And most importantly, our community's way of taking care of nature. There's also this thing of where do people want to see us? And that makes me believe that my voice is important. My voice matters. And I have to take the knowledge of my ancestors, my family, of how they have been leading an eco-friendly way of living, how they have contributed towards climate action. And most importantly, it's not about a single family, but this entire community of indigenous people. When I was in um, graduation, I had this opportunity to go on a field visit. I had uh, gone to chattisgarh And I was like super excited because you get 48 hours to stay in a village. It's the first village visit and, you know, engaging in all of the spaces. And um, to my uh, surprise, admiration and all of it, I saw that they were also eating in leaf plates. They were also making uh, these leaf plates, which happens in my family, also in our region also. And uh, there was no concept of waste. Because it's like whatever peels of vegetables is there, it's been eaten by the cattles. So there was no kind of that waste pollution happening around because it was like A, eaten by themselves. And uh, also there is this element of which is I have seen it in my own village. It's like my family used to eat the vegetables and dry it, the outer uh, crust of those mm-hmm. vegetables, which is used to like water bottles to go when they used oh, to go wow. for agriculture. So... I didn't see the plastic bottles like these days now back then and similarly I saw these things also hanging in the households Um, but at the same time it was so sad to see and hear from them the element of displacement, the element of pollution, Uh, there's this element of human trafficking also there and that is what made me realize that what Issues they are facing in Chattaskar is also the issues which we are facing in Odessa. And that made me realize that what can be done to address these issues in a larger scale of across states. And that is when one of the key observation and learning was there. It has to be policymaking. Because it's only when you are in policy making spaces, you will be able to work on issues in a widespread and that is also, I think, has been an important part of my journey. is like I want to be in the policymaking spaces, along with to voice my opinion and perspective of my communities. It's super important to make difference across states, across regions. And at that point of time, I also lost my father, who has been really instrumental in my life when I was in master's. That made me realize that all of this knowledge, all of this um, source of identity, culture of my community, will be lost. If I don't go back to my village, and that is when I realize that our loved ones, our elders will not be there with us for long. And we as young people need to go back to our communities and work for our communities and advocate for it. Because the crisis we are facing at this moment, climate crisis, is a global crisis. But it affects everyone differently. I mean, such a beautiful thought. I kept on getting this question
0: the last four or five years that I've been in Odessa, that. Uh, You studied in Geneva, you've worked in Delhi. What are you doing back home? And to explain why I've come back home to work in policy is so difficult. And I see you going through the same thing. The questions are similar, right, for you. And uh, the voices, you mentioned voices. And my question to you is, do you
1: see representation in policy spheres? Uh, So there's this uh, element of... um when I came back home, uh, when I was engaging and working as part of Vasundara, uh, the first time I got um, participated uh, in the UN spaces was uh, UNCCD um, a Conference of Parties. UNCCD is like United Nations Convention on Combating Desertification, the land convention. And um, it was in 2019 when I participated. And that made me so sad uh, in the youth summit that i was the only tribal in that entire summit from across the country and this just took me so back like where are my people and at that point of time definitely i was like it was a heartbreaking But also at this point of time, there was this element of solidarity that I had so many other indigenous leaders, youth leaders from different regions of Africa and Latin America. And that made me realize that I am not alone. There are my indigenous people across um, different regions. But also that had an element of like, I need to access the space, which also brings down to the thing of, you know, for me, uh, climate justice also means reclaiming spaces. And that brings me to the fact that I have been in a lot of rooms where I'm the only one representing. And this makes me... uh, it's a bittersweet kind of thing that, A, there's a bit of happiness that I have been able to access the spaces which has been inaccessible for years. But this element of sadness deep within that, why it's me, the one even in today, it's like the 21st century we're talking about, why there's still the basic representation and participation is a huge issue. And that is where I feel we need um, adequate um leadership and participation of indigenous peoples across decision making spaces i was the only one who was indigenous in a un secretary general's youth advisory group on climate change uh, it was an honor uh, to represent indigenous um, oh, wow. communities asia and india but at the same time i also feel that you know there's this element when we talk about decision making spaces is that we all are facing similar issues different in degrees and kinds but we all need nuances when it comes to policy making and implementation because that is where the challenges happens that is where the problem happens you can assume you can uh, you know take one policy made from this region to that region without consulting the communities on ground and that would lead to a blunder there because that is not the need and that is why I feel we need not only representation in the policy making spaces in terms of you know finalizing of the policies but a curating of policies implementation of agent uh, policies and monitoring of policies as well
0: you've already answered my question but I'd like to ask you again um, you've traveled uh, around the globe by now uh, do you think India is keeping up with this international movement towards inclusivity
1: I think um there's a huge potential of doing that but I feel there is way more that needs to be done and this brings me down to the perspective of ndcs of paris agreement i am could you please explain ndc to yes. our listeners um, ndcs is the nationally determined contributors uh, which all the countries who are part of paris agreements Um, are kind of writing as a commitment of what they will do in terms of addressing climate crisis. Even now, after five years of Paris Agreement, we have countries who do not have young people, who do not have women incorporated in the NDC, even articulated. And this is only for women and youth. But there is a huge chunk of uh, countries who have not even mentioned the word indigenous peoples in their indices and forget about implementation. And this breaks my heart because if it is, it has not made to those policy documents and commitment, where will we have those implementation? And these again comes back to, you know, Dipsha, it's about basics. Correct very basics of policy making like you are failing to acknowledge the stakeholders engaged in this and you're talking about addressing climate crisis which is a humongous challenge which is impacting everyone in a very different way so i would say that a if you have to lead in this you can uh, lead on this but that requires you to be a active listener observant and lead by actions which means that you have to have indigenous people, tribal communities, local communities, young people and people, those who are in margins in the policy uh, spaces, in the policies, acknowledging their issues, recognizing their rights, which also there's this um, thing, you know, uh, they are in the front lines, but they are not in the front pages of the newspapers. And that is what I feel that we need stronger NDCs, we need stronger commitments, and we need stronger implementations.
0: It feels like a top down approach, don't no, you say? Because they're so not connected with the grassroots. Their perspectives when it comes to policy making is what they hear and see, which is level three, tyre one, two, three. And it's just sad. Um, would you say COP is helping or no?
1: I would say um, COP is a very important process definitely but let me break it down for you it makes me again further sad that you know a lot of my friends a lot of our community young people are not able to access COP because of visa issues and funding funding of course is a huge thing so I started off with visa because it's the smaller issue and then I would lead to funding (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is the
0: irony. The irony here is COP28 is being sponsored by oil and gas
1: companies. That is the irony. You know, I'm laughing, but I'm laughing with a lot of pain, pain. because this is what young people have been advocating and saying that how will we have policies and decisions for climate action when we have influence? And decision-making spaces taken over by the fossil fuels. And this also leads to a bigger question of who is in the room and who is in the decision-making spaces, which also I would like to weave in this entire thing of, again, participation. Because this, again, leads to, you know, challenges to Access COP. So, like, first of all, do we have languages which is being spoken by the communities and, you know, mechanism to interpret that? We have languages of interpretation only for a certain languages. Like for example, if you say UN languages. But it's also really important to understand that a dialogue will only happen when we have language justice and there are way too many languages. What is the mechanism around that? Which also requires that can we have national level plans on this, regional level, local plans on this, where we are taking into consideration of A having more interpretations allocation of funds for interpretation because there's this element of you know we cannot have interpreters because we don't have money it's a high budget thing if we don't have money to have a dialogue how can we have money for other purposes when you have huge amount of money for other purposes and there is this element of like do we know that there's something like cop who knows and this is I'm saying it from a place when I am really humble of being able to access those spaces and have participated in the the, uh, cops but the thing is like the people who will be impacted by the cop decisions do they know that there is process like this and are they consulted around this of you know this cop decision and has happened we want to you know take it into consultation and engage with them or you know there's a cop happening what is your perspective So we need to be informed by the communities, those who are on ground facing the impacts of climate crisis and they need to be there in spaces like COP. And then coming back to the visa issues, visa issues are so real because a lot of communities and countries are blacklisted in a lot of um, spaces. And this is something, a huge challenge faced by young people. And there is safety issues security issues because you raise your voice you speak the realities so that's also there and there is this element of entire expenses being bored of you know uh, how will the people attend COPS when they do not have resources and who will provide resources so it has to be an institutional support which needs to be then so I would say that cop is super important for decision-making spaces and we all need to be part of that processes but I would say that this is just like this uh, this is a this is a circle national level regional level whatever local level uh, whatever is happening in terms of issues needs to go to COP and the decisions needs to come back here and that loop needs to happen until and unless that loop happens then we are not able to address it and we are still talking about the logistic issues of people participating for funding visa safety security we need to we need to move way beyond this when we are literally struggling for basics you just spoke about the
0: cycle that goes on in a loop but I believe that the cycle is not complete there are broken spaces the wheel does not function properly but you would be able to tell us better about it about the gaps
1: it was only in 2018 in the IPCC report. IPCC report is one of the very important report, okay. uh, which talks about climate crisis and the scientists' uh, alarmers tell us the challenges and also recommendation. There they have mentioned that role of indigenous peoples and their significance and recognizing their importance in climate action. The second thing is like recognizing the rights um, over the land, forest and territories is important. And also recognizing about emphasizing on supporting, promoting and documentation of the traditional knowledge and practices. And that is also one of the key thing which has been advocated in COP. Is like, you know, it is important for climate action. When I, but when I come down here in the national level, um, we have Forest Rights Act. 2006. And it is a very important act for tribal communities, which recognizes their uh, rights over their land and forest. Um, And most importantly, also, you know, supports the tribal communities in terms of the traditional knowledge and practices. But are we seeing it in a lens that that issue of climate crisis can also be addressed by effective implementation of this law, which is called Forest Right Act. I fail to see that amount of interrelation and interpretation of laws. And that is a fragmented loop which you are seeing is so important because we need departments to work in coherence. Indigenous people should be leaders of climate action, not victims of climate policies. What a beautiful thought. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because the thing is, we want to uh, protect the world and the world's biodiversity. But as per the reports, 80% of the world's biodiversity is protected by Indigenous people who comprise of less than 5% of the total population.
0: Wow, commendable.
1: And this population here on ground is living a life with their land, their forest. But if we are not recognizing their rights, then again we are implementing a plantation law where we are evicting them, displacing them to have those plantations. Then that is such an irony. Plantations or afforestation is one of the solutions for climate mitigation. We need more plantation. We need more forest areas. And that is why I would say often if you do not think through the policies made for climate mitigation will make the communities vulnerable in terms of climate adaptation and resilience. And let me give you this example. Um, I had gone to field visit to meet community leaders and um, when i met the community leader uh, here in india in orissa i said that um, how are you how have you been doing so they're like we are happy we're doing good uh, but there's this challenge of you know people have come to our village um, and they want to plant uh, trees and we are protesting and i was like what happened uh, why, uh, what they want to plant and why are you protesting so they said that uh, they had brought fruit trees And I was like, fruit trees? Okay. I was like, what's the problem in fruit trees? Because Commercially viable trees. (laughs) It's like, what's the problem in fruit trees? Uh, So then uh, they said that if they plant mango trees and uh, jackfruit trees in the periphery of our village, then uh, wild animals, wild boars will come to eat it and they will destroy our agriculture crops. And that took me so back. Because yes, they are tribal, I am tribal, but I don't know the context where they are living in and their issues. And you can't make policies sitting above saying that afforestation will change the dynamics when the afforestation implementation can completely ruin the dynamics on ground. And then they said that we need sal leaf because that is important for our ecosystem and biodiversity we want salt trees to be planted here and this brings me from a lens of climate mitigation by uh, you know that plantation was happening i'm, I'm tending to speak in odia because this conversation has been in odia there's this thing of um, they if you see that these plantation drives is mostly pushed for climate mitigations and then if that would have happened those plantation then when they would have like you know um, rains in a unplanned way or you know um, not in a seasonal way then their crops is lost by the animals and also they don't have anything to you know have in terms of food and livelihood because it is also lost in the uh, climate crisis and this is so important to understand that policies need to be informed and free prior informed consent of community needs to be taken and there's this another example, which I would also like to give. Like we are talking a lot about loss and damage in the global dynamics. And this is something I have been reflecting a lot is that when we talk about loss and damage, there's this thing of what, what looks to our eye and what doesn't looks to our eye. Invisible barriers. Yeah. So like if you see um, in the coastal areas, we see the loss. Like loss of lives, loss of households, loss of cattles and shelters and all of it. But I come from a very forested place. There will not be the loss which you see it um, in the coastal, coastal, region. coastal regions. But that mere drop of rain itself is killing people as a slow death. Because that rain which is happening is uh, destroying the entire crop. And that because of that rain, in a continuous fashion... People have to migrate and uh, people are in debt and that burden falls on um, women because the women are the ones who are taking care of the household, the agriculture, because the men goes out. It's also linked to, you know, loss of identity, culture, tradition, language because of this. And in a lot of places, we have also seen that that has has also led to loss of their husband and family members. How do we compensate this loss or how do we see these loss when these are not acknowledged even? So I want to say that when we are talking also about these thematics, issues of loss and damages, it is so different in terms of different contexts. And that is where, as you said, I'm weaving in again the issue of participation. We need more research. We need more documentation. We need more participation from the community themselves. Because what they are facing is something which no one else can explain. And that is why, you know, our voice matter, which again brings down to the fact how do we make sure that these issues are addressed? And why are even the community important? Can we talk about the women of the community? Yes, a lot of the children have been able to access education because of the women. Forest based livelihood is one of the major source of income of tribal communities. And who are the ones who are engaged in this? It's the women. Women for the win. <laughs> we, we discussed the Siyali Festival. Would you like to tell our listeners about the Siyali Festival and yes. the role of women there? Yes. So Siyali Festival is a festival celebrated by uh, women in Niagara. There was an incident when I had got an opportunity to speak to the women leader uh, of those communities. And they said uh, there was a time in their village, in the forest, when they had absolutely no siali tree. I mean, like sal tree in their uh, wow Wow. Uh, when village. was this? This was, I think, almost like 40, 40 to 50 years back. And, uh, and that impacted a lot, not only their um, income, you know economic way but it also impacted them on a sustenance way of food because they uh, that's a major source like you know stitching siali leaves Correct. and you know uh, you know that is has been a major source the plates, plates the eating spiritual yes. values of you know making food around that so it impacted them a lot and that is when um, they prayed to the sal tree and uh, they uh, had the siali uh, seeds And they put cow dung on that, covered on that, and planted across the place. And the (laughs) next year, the entire forest had a lot of Siali leaf and uh, sal trees. And that is what and why it is celebrated as Siali festival. It's a day of thanksgiving. It's a day of rejoicing. It's a way of expressing a gratitude. It's a day of knowing where we come from as an identity. And the rituals.
0: I was very lucky to see one of the rituals uh, during CRI Festival. Please tell our people about Bali. 50 to 70
1: years back, there was this huge thing of uh, people coming and stealing their forest. Stealing <laughs> their forest. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh yes, yes, that's stealing. happening. That's definitely <laughs> happening. <laughs> and that is when they made... Um, This thing of, you know, who will protect the forest? And uh, they had, uh, you know, men who will uh, protect. And there was a point they realized, um, which is also a reflection, is that the community's members said that because there were timber mafias and because there were men, there were more like conflict started, fights started. And there was this point of like, because the conflict and the fight started, then there was a point that they said that if we have women in the protection, in the forefront, because of the stronger laws for women, they will not be able to do anything. So we will wow. have uh, women there. Was this a local decision or a uh, tri- leader tribal leader decision? So it was a community uh, decisions there. And that is uh, where it started. But there was a point again where the women are like, because of us, we have protected the forest and we want to be part of the decision-making process. Oh, and we uh, will be protecting the forest here on because you were not able to do it. We have been doing it and we need to be part of the decision-making process. And we take this ownership on us. Taking ownership of the process is so important because people fail to give us the ownership or take the credit from us. And that is when it has been 50 to 70 years that things have been continuing now. Every single morning, the community members wake up in the morning, do the household chores uh, and then take the stick. Which is Thinga. Yeah. So stick means tinga, Pali means turn. turn. So and then they go for patrolling. This how is this turn aspect is coming across? It's like uh, Today is my turn. Tomorrow is your turn. So this stick also rotates in the village. So like, if I am going today, when I come back, I will keep uh, the stick in the next house. So it, so it's done. So <laughs> there's this element of protecting the forest, taking the stick. It's like tuck 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 tuck. So when you make noise and go, so people know that someone is protecting. And over the years, they have been able to protect that areas. And you yeah, said it's all voluntary, so there's no compulsion that if I get the stick, I have to go, yeah, but then there is this thing of you know willingness and community feeling community feeling, and this is something which I would also come down to is like, why are these women doing like this? Uh, what motivates them, and what is the thought process around this? One of the key things which I personally feel, which has inspired me is like this selfless thing of. Protecting the forest is also because of this feeling and relationship with I have with forest. Like these women consider forest as their children. And also they consider it as mother. This entire analogy of mother-children, you know, taking care of us, blessing us, providing us food. But then seeing it from today's lens, which makes me uh, also feel this from this element is like they are protecting this for with their worldview not only for them for each one of us the least we can do for them is give their rights over the land the forest which they are protecting which we have not given to them which is a struggle and which is still in the process of implementation and that is what i feel like if you now see it from a lens of justice quotient. It's like, who is contributing towards climate action? Who is being impacted by climate crisis? And who is the one who is causing climate crisis? This entire dynamics needs to be dwelled upon and reflected from a lens of climate justice. Because these communities, members, are, and we need stronger policies for them. Aren't there overview
0: mechanisms that are taking care of the cons that come with the so-called development that is happening around your area or in general? Are there policies in place? Are there um, inspection mechanisms? Are there any any law stopping them from taking
1: over the land person? I think there's this element of definitely when we talk about PESA, Panchayat Extension Act or Forest Right Act. We do have laws which are supposed to prevent uh, the communities from being evicted, displaced and, you know, recognizing their rights over the land, forests and territories. But there's also this, again, the quotient of implementation, of course. So I would like to see this from a lens of not only mere one act or two act, but go back to the constitution of India, like the fundamental rights, the right to life, right to good health, right to habitat, right to livelihood yes and that is something which we need at this point of time to have an intersectional and intergenerational worldview on policy making and implementation we can't no longer see all of this in isolation and that's the challenge we are facing like we have certain like you know we will only focus in this we will only focus in this when the fe- issue which we are facing is such multidisciplinary <laughs>
0: Do you have some better solutions, some some things that you have learned from your contemporaries globally? What are the best practices? How how do we move forward from here? How do we reimagine borders? How do we find solutions to
1: this? I think for me, uh, when we are talking about solutions, recommendations, um, one of the key thing which for me is really important is knowing your stakeholders. And this is something we are taught in policy making. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Basic one hundred one <laughs> uh, dynamics is knowing your stakeholders. Yes. And when knowing your stakeholders come, I would like to again go back to you know young people or specifically tribal communities. As I said, it's worldview, way of living, and their practices, traditional knowledge and practices. So until and unless you have this awareness of how they function what are the challenges and what are the issues and how they are contributing you will not able to make policies which is um, ha- you know beneficial to them and beneficial for everyone which again brings like you know thing of intent without a efficient design is useless and intent uh, without the intention of effective implementation Again, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So that is what I feel like intent without a proper protocol is again faulty. That's what I would like to say that first, free prior informed consent of indigenous people or tribal communities is super important. I can't emphasize on this way more than this because this is the important thing. And it's also the thing is key ask us <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> pooch the lo <laughs> uh-huh. it's like let us know like uh, ask us and there's this thing of you know allyship i would like to emphasize and focus is like i believe in allyship i believe in solidarity but i also acknowledge that you know how there has been appropriation how there has been mistrust around this i feel there is really important to reimagine how solidarity will look and for me solidarity is very sacred and uh, solidarity comes from a lens of i can offer this and being honest of what you can do and we all are unique and we all can do that and this is also coming from a lens of second thing which i would like to emphasize is once you know your stakeholders involve your stakeholders which is like participation leadership and then i feel be fearless to take bold decisions because we cannot surpass the issues which we are facing being blind in the sense of denial you know denying that it exists and that is really important when I say that you know the denial quotient of the issues we are facing because often that is not an issue for you because of your privilege, but that is an issue for the communities on ground and that is an issue for each one of us. So we need to come out of our comfort zone while planning policies and working around that. On that note, thank you so much, Archana, for coming down today. You were
0: hard to find, but (laughs) I'm so happy that we could finally record uh, an episode with you and I hope that you would come back again
1: for. A little more knowledge,
0: dissemination, <laughs> if not
1: to just spend time with us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dipsha. But now that you have been so sweet to me and, you know, giving me this platform, I would like to sing a song for you. <laughs> oh, yippee! yippee. <laughs> um, and I think this is uh, one of my favorite songs. Uh, and this is the song this is the first song which I learned from my grandmother Wow! Uh, so this is again I would like, now that the ball is on my coat I would like to share that you know um, embracing our identity as a tribal youth is very important for me because I feel like embracing our roots and being proud of it is super super important at this point of time and I remember this thing of you know when I first uh, became the part of UN Secretary-General's Youth Advisory Group, uh, we had a meeting with Deputy Secretary-General Amina Mohammed, mm-hmm. And she had told this, which I remember and was very special to me, that never, ever forget your roots and your communities. And also, there's this thing when I met Secretary-General, he had said that, you know, be fearless, speak your mind up. You're a rock, Archana. <laughs> <laughs> so, in this little, funny, uh, beautiful song... A, You are getting to know about what kind of um, trees and leaves are there, but also getting to know that kids are also involved, (laughs) but also getting to know that how to plug the leaves. So the song goes like this. KONNAN KONNAN KULUKI AđOLSA MAI GHAI Sunda Ighai e GHAI SUNDAR MAI GHAI SUNDDA AANI CHAN AANI ING THIRAM MAI I